You are listening to 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is a broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon. This is Encyclopedia on your Sunday afternoon here on 3CR. Thank you to Freedom of Species, who will be back next week from the same time and do find their podcast. I heard they were speaking to another person who does um, another podcast. There's podcasts of a lot of 3CR shows, but also plenty of other podcasts out there, I'm sure, that you listen to. So make sure that you do subscribe to 3CR podcasts, such as our own and Freedom of Species, uh, on whatever podcast app you use. My name is Nick Wallace, and on the show this afternoon, we will be uh, taking a delve into the history of uh, festivals in Australia, especially counter culture festivals, uh, in a con- second part of our conversation with Robbie Swan. Uh, uh, Going, yeah, having a look back in in, in time, uh, and also last weekend, Ash, you were at the uh, Hemp Health and Innovation Expo. Welcome back to the studio, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, it was always interesting doing a uh, on the site live cross. And how was the uh, Hemp Health and Innovation Expo? Well attended. Uh, does it fill up a, a how, how it's, like how big a space is well, it? It's in a pretty the... big. It's down at Jeff Shed, yeah. so they've got one of those big rooms down there. Heaps of vendors. Yeah, I think it was pretty well attended. Um, there was a bit of a change in some of the storeholders. I actually went looking for a couple of them and they weren't there this year, but some new ones were. Um, talks throughout the full uh, full two days and um, plenty of people interested in the diversity of things related to hemp and cannabis. And you've um, there were a couple of things that we'll actually we'll get to those in just a moment um, that uh, you recorded while you were uh, down there. Yep. Um, and also before we uh, before we jump into that though, maybe a, a quick bit of news. What what's been going on? So there's a couple of um, well, there was an interesting report came out by Harm Reduction International, big international harm reduction organisation called the Global State of Harm Reduction 2018, and. Well, the news isn't really great. Um, since, 2018, uh, since 2016, uh, global efforts on harm reduction have stalled. Um, the number of countries that have needle syringe programs providing clean injecting equipment has actually fallen from 90 to 86. Um, there's been a few more uh, safe consumption sites, but the growth has been pretty slow. And... Um, you know, sort of some of the the focuses overdose prevention and transmission of bloodborne viruses has not progressed in the way that's really necessary to a- address the the global health crisis that is HIV transmission and, and Hep C transmission. It's unfortunate, but um, we have seen a, a lurch toward. You know, some countries have, have got their strong men as uh, in as leaders and. Um, uh, that sort of mentality seems to be, you know, this sort of punish people until they figure out what we want from them rather than try and, you know, work with people to understand them. Um, uh, you, you can find that on our social media page. We've posted a link to that report or at hri.global.com, I think is their website. Um, the other one that's uh, come up this week is the Australian Capital Territory. Um, Canberra have released their drug strategy action plan for the next three years. And interestingly, it uh, recommends that the government look into safe injecting sites in um, Canberra as well. Um, and that's interesting historically. In the early 2000s, there was a plan to not just have a safe consumption site there, but also... Um, prescription heroin. That was a trial that it's six years had gone into the development of that trial. 
and it was essentially stopped by the federal government, which is the threat that that could happen again. Mm, there does seem to be a lot of um, progressive things going on in the ACT, but they do have that persistent threat, especially with a government desperate to brand its right-wing values. Um, just across the ocean as well, in New Zealand, uh, there's been moves and talk uh, that New Zealand, the New, Ze- New Zealand government is uh, considering drug decriminalisation uh, and re, uh, refocusing uh, authorities' efforts onto... Uh, onto health issues, so it looks like they're going starting down the, that line. I haven't actually had a look at the legislation or anything like that yet. I've just been reading a couple of the articles that have come out, out this week, but um, uh, also talk of um, legalizing cannabis. I think that's just a, a bill that's been put up by somebody it's, in. There's going to be a government. referendum. Referendum, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and a lot of that also comes in context of um, New Zealand being. Uh, far away the drug markets are a little bit um you know it's a lot more expensive fewer drugs get there so they had the boom in synthetics and uh they went to regulate that a few years ago with the psychoactive substances act uh which did let a few substances um through but had no evaluation now the evaluation scheme uh that's in there nobody can pass it so there's nothing available so it's created a new black market of novel psychoactive substances uh including a lot of the synthetic cannabinoids uh which have caused havoc um, across parts of New Zealand. Yeah, we'll be getting into some of that with the interview that I recorded with um, uh, an attendee of the, the conference uh, a little later in the show. He's uh, involved in um, uh, the vaping industry there, but also very interested in the development of the medical cannabis industry over the next few years. And uh, any final uh, news? Well, there was the big one that, once again, unfortunately, there has been a death at a uh, music festival in New South Wales. A young man died after attending the Knockout Games of Destiny event uh, in Sydney, I believe it was. Um, And, you know, that's led to the, I guess, predictable discussions around pill testing as a way to um, address the risks of this kind of thing and once again the government going well you know um we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas so (laughs) let's keep doing what we're doing um and that just seems to be each summer now that's the discussion that we have um you know uh, eventually there's some kind of incident or tragically a death and the you know advocates like us will go well it's pretty easy to to implement a strategy that can reduce the risk of this mm. we know it's been done overseas there's good we, evidence we don't need to be works. adversarial with everyone we don't need to go oh but we told you to say no and you didn't say no so you need to remember to say no next time like we don't need to do that yeah. it's stupid it's yeah and i think interestingly as well there's more voices in the media that have um i guess become a, a lot more educated across this topic so you're seeing more presenters even in the mainstream press pushing back against this idea that just say no is an effective strategy for dealing with this kind of risk and um, having a a bit more of depth of knowledge to actually engage in the discussion. And one of the interesting things when that does come up is that they highlight the fact that one of the key um, benefits of these kinds of services isn't just that they can identify toxic or risky substances, but people that might never speak to a, a medical professional or a peer worker about their drug use have that opportunity to go in and have a, a discussion that's open, 
um, non-judgmental and can provide accurate information. And so that person can then walk away with a different idea about how to reduce risk for the rest of their life. And, and just one final one. I have noticed that names have been popping up in the media a lot lately. Uh, I contacted um, Stephen Bright, uh, Dr. Stephen Bright from AOD Media Watch, uh, and I said, uh, Steve, I've got, to, I've got to write something about this, and can you give me a couple of people that can help me review it? And he's like, yeah, yeah, we need to get on top of this because um, there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, the, the harms that a lot of these articles are focusing on of NANGs are the most unlikely harms that are likely to occur. Among, if you've got a thousand people using NANGs, about 0.1 of one person is going to have that particular kind of harm that they over, you know, they, they, they push. We've also seen this, um, th- this effect of all these articles actually leads to a higher demand for these sorts of substances because suddenly people who didn't know now do know. Anyway, I went to do this and then um, I was speaking to Steve today and he's like, actually, did you see that 10 Daily uh, article? So 10 Daily, as in Channel 10, the the TV station, um, did an article and it pretty much checked all the boxes as far as AOD Media Watch goes. He was like, that's that's what we want the media to be doing. We don't need to do anything. Yeah, so right. there was, um, yeah, it had a good discussion on it. They discussed the risks. They had uh, Jared... Jared Bartle, who's from uh, the Reason Party, but also a board member of Harm Reduction Victoria, was quoted in it. Uh, and they spoke to reputable people, and mm-hmm. they, they actually found the, the, the things that were damaging. Anyway, I thought that was just good. <laughs> yeah, um, I've got more to say, but maybe we should yeah, we better, on. Yeah, so we've got, we've got, got, got a lot lots on the show. On the show so, uh, yeah. It is 3CR Community Radio. Looking for a gift for the lefty in your life this Christmas? 3CR has a range of publications, clothing, CDs, wine and other products available online or from the station. New items include the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary, which features a radical event in Australian history for each day of the year, as well as stories and images covering Indigenous Australian resistance, strikes, street art, convict escapes, creative direct action, blockades, protests and occupations. Also available is Fighting for Spaces, Fighting for Our Lives, a collection of essays, photographs and first-hand accounts about the squatting movements from around the world today. And On The Fly, an anthology which features dozens of stories, poems and songs originally produced by American hobos from the 1870s to the 1940s. Sale of these publications all help keep 3CR on air. For more information or to make a purchase, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. So last week when I was at the Hemp Health and Innovation Expo down here in Melbourne, I caught up with uh, a New Zealander, Cody from the Vaporium, which just turned out to be one of those interesting chats. And he had a lot to say about um, what's happening in New Zealand and also his experience of coming to the event. So we're going to hear from Cody now. That's right. This is Ash here for Encyclopedia at the 2018 Hemp Health and Innovation Expo uh, down in Melbourne, and I'm here with uh, Cody Penny from Vaporium in New Zealand. And what brought you? Did you come over just for this? Uh, yeah. So um, hemp, hemp's recently been legalised in New Zealand as a food. You know, you can eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like, given you guys have been a year ahead of us, and sort of want to see where the industry's going and what we can do to help get it into New Zealand a bit more. And what about medical cannabis in New Zealand? Is there any schemes for medical cannabis? The, the current government's working on a, a, a decriminalisation plan. Uh, so basically that, that's for full recreation. Um, and then after that, I think they're going to start trying to put provisions in place for medical cannabis. Right, OK. Yeah. So 
looks like it might be recreational first and yeah, then medical. They're really dragging the chain on the medical thing. It's, it's, um, I mean, there's a lot of companies who are currently growing medical cannabis and exporting it to Canada. But you oh, so you've got growing thing. licenses yeah. and export licenses, but no domestic market. Yeah, yeah. I think it was like that here for a little while. Like people were starting to freak out, so they opened up their export licenses because the domestic market was developing so slowly. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, I think it's yeah they're, they're trying to work out ways to dose medicinal cannabis. I think that's always been the biggest problem with it. Well, I think that. Um, Maybe they're quite savvy because I think that's the right way to go about it. Recreational provides access for people yeah. that want to, you know, get it for medical purposes while they figure out prescribing guidelines and do clinical trials and, like, yeah, yeah. kind of get it ready for, like, a proper medical scheme, you know, with doctors and yeah. all the rest of it. Well, well the, the, that's, uh, you know, part of the reason why I support decriminalisation over legalisation is it, it makes sure it keeps all those uh, families that relied on it for money and they can still do it without being... Yeah, without the fear of getting put in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas full legalisation is going to open it up to a lot of corporate influence, which is, you know, it's going to take it away from the people that were being persecuted for it for the last you know, 60, 70 years. Right. Yeah, I was in California for um, the not the most recent vote on legalising cannabis, but the yeah. one before. And um, that's probably the reason it didn't get up, because they had a lot of people growing for the medical dispensaries that were, like, concerned about corporate takeover of what was essentially a flourishing community business yeah yeah well i mean it's it's our culture you know it's it's not their culture and uh, i feel like it should be us that benefit from it and not not some people who aren't passionate about it not you know that don't understand the culture and how how about vaping so you own and run a vaping store yeah yeah um so me and my business partner own um, vaporium and we were new zealand's first uh, physical shop dedicated to vaping Um, so yeah, we, we have yeah we do more than just uh, retail. We have a research and development division in a lab. Uh, so we make sure all our juice is you know, really high standard. We don't put any of the nasty crap in it. Um, and our whole whole business model is based around harm reduction. Mm-hmm. And so that's also what we're kind of wanting to do in the cannabis market as well once it's legal. So a lot of vaping and edibles to get yeah. people off smoking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons I got into activism. Yeah. <laughs> I was keen on, like, cannabis harm reduction, and then I discovered the rest of drug policy and, yeah. you know, got into that. Um, so do you sell the, the pod devices with the nicotine salts as well? Yes, yes, actually. I've got nicotine salts in this right now. Yeah, um, right. But we... Do you want to explain the difference? Um, uh, so, so back in, like, the 60s, um, I can't remember what tobacco company it was, but they started spraying ammonia on their leaves, essentially taking it from this nicotine salt and breaking it down to a free base nicotine. I, I'm not really too sure what the biomechanics are of that, or whether it's more bioavailable as a free base nicotine when you're burning it. But it, when you vape it, it's not as it's not as uh, free base nicotine takes longer to build up and then it tapers off over a longer period, whereas salts hits you harder and then drops off quicker, so it mimics the effect, the, the effect of the cigarette a bit more. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, we've we've developed a, a, a pod product that's. Um, We've sort of been through about maybe 50 different blends of nicotine salts to find one that we think is perfect for the market. And that's going to be launched probably in mid-January. Yeah, cool. And so what's been your favourite thing about the Hemp Health and Innovation Expo? Uh, Easy as organics. Oh, yeah? Uh, So it's a... um, it's a 
no-till uh, soil, so you don't ever have to dig it up. You just put this recharge stuff on top. Um, the soil lasts forever, you know, uh, figuratively, you know, depending on how well you look after it and you feed it, because it's so rich in microbiota that it, it just keeps the soil really healthy, aerated, um, and just rich. And I've seen like side by side comparisons of plants growing in different, but you have know, normal potting mix versus this stuff, and this stuff is foolproof. It's actually the most amazing and easiest way to grow. And like, because you're not using like nutrients and stuff, you're not destroying the microbiota in the soil. So it's it's, it's like true organics. It's not just like an organic nutrient because you don't have to do anything else. And you think that's a good product for scaling for commercial production? Yeah, yeah, very much so. You, you can even just uh, top dress a paddock with it, oh. and it would you know, last forever. So it's sort of as long as you keep the soil healthy. Cool. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I, 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 look, yeah, I was always about hydroponics when I was at uni, and I had had a wee grow set up. And, uh, now that I've found this stuff, I'd never go hydro ever again. The, the, the yield is bigger, the taste is better, the strength of your product is better. It's better in every single way. I just can't believe it hasn't taken off yet. Yeah, yeah. cool. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, that's the thing I'm most excited about. The, the crap thing is, because it's a living soil, we can't take it to New Zealand because it'll fumigate it and <laughs> it'll just kill it. So Yeah, right. Yeah. Interesting. Any yeah. final thoughts? Uh, I'm really interested to see where uh, medical cannabis goes. You know, seeing what's happening here with hemp um, and you know all the buzz around CBD. I, I want to see what happens with uh, you know the full plant profile, including THC, CBD uh, concentrations, and an understanding of how terpenes react with uh, interact with that THC and CBD. Yeah, cool. yeah. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for chatting with us. No problem. Thank you. And that was Cody from the Vaporium in New Zealand. And next up, we're going to hear just a little snippet from Greg Chip's um, talk at the Hemp Expo from Drug Policy Australia. No, that one's not, it's not, no not quite there. <laughs> there go. It says it's it says it's there, but. Um... Okay. Well, while you're doing that, I'll come back to that um, Nang story. One of the things that came up in that discussion was a young man that died after falling off a balcony in the Gold Coast. <laughs> oh, we got little Ari in the studio with us. Um, and his father had called for Nangs to be banned, obviously, because he's upset that his son passed away. But that is, um, that's one of the risks that we know about with nitrous oxide is the most common acute risk is actually falling over. So yeah. for people that do use it or if you're around people that are using it, make sure that they're not standing up, make sure that they don't have anything dangerous around them and make sure that they don't stand up too quickly after using it. And that's the best way to avoid the most common injury that occurs. Uh, just that thing I gave you there, uh, just look for the one that says uh, Greg Chip segment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. And, um, okay. and, uh, and hear this one as well. Okay, there we go. Let's just plug this in here. Uh, 3CR is where you're tuned right now. And uh, if you want to find any more information about anything we talk about on the program, please follow the links to our social media uh, page or to our website, which we are in the middle of uh, redesigning, recreating a new website. It's probably still a few months off yet. 
Um, oh, sorry. It'll be in the uh, in Psychedelia folder, episode 180. <laughs> oh, I see. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Lovely. What, and that's uh, that's something as well. This is our 180th episode, so we're getting close onto, onto 200 now. We've been uh, doing this for uh, about three years, so it was was about time to uh, to redo the, the website, and um, uh, there will be a, a lot of stuff on there. I'm hoping to make it so that you can track every, uh, every episode by themes and issues, because uh, themes and issues... Uh, uh, come up over and over uh, particular campaigns uh, like well cannabis issues and we've got we've got some audio now on cannabis policy Australia which is an organization and with the unashamed um, purpose perhaps of spruiking some support from anybody in the audience that sees uh, you know the good in what we're doing uh, our um, catchphrase if you like is facts change minds um, and our, our, our mission if you like is promoting evidence-based drug policy human rights and I'll come back to that uh, and public health catchphrase we've got there facts change mind is an interesting catchphrase and alludes to the fact that we promote evidence-based drug policies but the more you delve into this issue you'll understand that in relation to drugs and any emotional issue religious or political that's absolute crap facts don't change minds emotions change minds and that's key to understand with the drug issue that this is a very emotional issue for people. They've been caught in from uh, you know, primary school, been taught at schools, taught to respect the law, taught to respect our parents and taught the fact that the drugs are dangerous. Taught a lot of misinformation, a lot of propaganda about the drug laws. And this is what drug policy is trying to do, that's what I'm trying to do is stand up here today, is put the point, make the point that the drug laws are not working and we need a better way. Um, if I could just run through again a little bit about the structure, Drug Policy Australia was a registered tax deductible charity, which was no mean feat. We had to uh, put a 100-page submission to the Australian Charities Commission, who thought that a health promotion charity should just be saying, don't use drugs, which we all know is silly. We had to put an objection into their objection, but we were the first charity to get registered. Uh, and our primary purpose, if it comes to it, is the principal purpose of the companies are to promote the prevention and control of diseases associated with the use of psychoactive substances. Broad brush there, but that was put in our constitution for a reason, by way of harm minimisation approach through public education, research and advocacy. That's what we do. Public Opinion Afro Orchestra from their new EP, Naming and Blaming, and that is The System on 3CR Community Radio 855am, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. And we're going to get straight into part two of our chat with Robbie Swan. Uh, in part one, we were talking about uh, festivals, especially the uh, sort of origins of counterculture festivals in Australia around the Aquarius Festival in the early 1970s uh, and... Uh, and um, how, you know how how a lot of things bloomed out of that, and also the the ongoing narrative of culture wars that we have at the moment. This is uh, Robbie Swan picking up from uh, about where Richard Nixon announced the war on drugs, I believe. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with 
the problems of sources of supply as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad wherever they are in the world. It will be government-wide pulling together the nine different fragmented areas within the government in which this problem is now being handled. And it will be nationwide in terms of a new educational program uh, that we trust will result as uh, from the discussions that we have had. I mean, you've got to remember that Richard Nixon had only three or four years before that sort of de you know, declared this war on drugs and, uh, and it was just sweeping through Australia as well, even though there was this you know, counterculture that was you know, defending the line, holding the line. But, uh, but politicians were different because you know, they can't really be sacked for coming out and saying that they smoke pot. You know, I mean, a senior public servant can... But a politician's different. A politician's sort of, in a way, above that. And that's what I mean. If uh, politicians had been honest about their use of marijuana back in those days, I think we would be looking at a very different situation now. It's, it's not even just um, honest about their use to the public, but uh, at, at this time, as I was saying at the start, they were discussing the um, the laws, um, the sort of um, origins to the laws that we have today, because it wasn't quite done in the same way, the way that we have it now with the prescribed amounts, with uh, use, possession, trafficking, the different categories um, of, of both substance and of... Um, uh, of, of crime that you've committed, depending on how much of that substance you have, that all evolved in the in the. Um, I mean, it, it evolved from slightly earlier, but it was really in the early seventies in Australia that yeah. we got where we are today that we got the origins of where we are today of course since then they've been amending every act every couple of years to increase penalties yes. um but it, it was really then that this was um this was all happening so politicians had a chance in the chambers to they didn't have to admit it they could have just said this is not a good law were they doing that was that was that even um discussed or was no no nothing no i mean it, it just was struggle reform a thing at the time or was it not even seen <clears throat> as a no 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 it wasn't even uh, thought of no nobody even mentioned it um i remember there was a lot of um i, I remember um you know later on in this in the late 70s um spruiking uh you know meditation to senate com a senate committee and saying that this could um meditation and yoga could help uh you know people who were addicted to drugs right and, I mean, by the late 70s, the heroin epidemic had really hit Australia, or, mm. you know, and so it was pretty well established. <clears throat> and that's what I was talking about, really. But, um, but nobody took it, you know, nobody looked at drug law reform seriously at that point because the laws, as you say, had just been changed. And so, the, you know... It sort of hadn't settled what exactly these would do <clears throat> and how these could be used uh, and how, how, how no. much it would send the... You know, because it was really... You look at those graphs about um, incarceration rates, mm -hmm. and it's the 1970s that it all starts to take off, speeds up in the 1980s and 1990s, and gets where it is today. Yeah, exactly. You know, you're right. So we've got saying in the early 1970s, Australia had its own um, own sort of version of Woodstock. A few years after, as as these things, um, you know, take a little bit of time to to settle in. But this was, um, uh, and some listeners might actually. Uh, remember this because I'm sure there's some 3CR listeners who were probably there. Um, Sunbury Fest. Yeah, I think that was 1972. I think the first Sunbury <clears throat> happened there, and uh, yeah, we all, you know, there was like ten of us got in the back of an EK Holden panel van and uh, drove down the Hume Highway for that. Um, <clears throat> that was a very, uh, it was a pretty good festival in many ways, although it was quite different to the first AUS um, festival in Canberra, which was. Very political. There, there really wasn't any politics about this at all. Mm. Uh, it was a kind of a, you know, it had the, it had a lot of, um, you know, hallucinogenics there, and uh, you know, hippies and 
you know, people who wanted to just, you know, really transcend themselves, you know, through drugs there and the music. But then another half of it were meatheads, you know, who mm. were there drinking, you know, goons of kind of Riesling or something and, you know, sort of the, the Jack Daniels, you know, kind of flasks and all that. And, uh, you know, they were there to enjoy themselves as well in their own way, I suppose. But, uh, you know, it was a pretty interesting festival in that way. I thought it was quite divided. You know, there were mm. two distinct groups there. And uh, and the music was quite interesting too because, um, you know, it actually catered, many of the bands catered for both schools at the same time. I mean, Billy Thorpe was probably the best um, exponent of this because he was just moving into his, uh, you know, psychedelic period at that stage from being a pretty much a, you know, a, a hard rocker, you mm. know, in the cold chisel kind of mode uh, in his early days to, uh, you know, you know, something a little bit more kind of transcendental, um, if you could say that, uh, in, in his later years. Um, and so everybody kind of, you know, grooved off the same music in, a, in their own way, um, you know, uh, Jerry Humphreys was there with the loved ones, and uh, you know, in fact, he was the compere of that um, of that first festival. And you know, their particular style of blues was pretty amazing. You know, that it it actually, uh, you know, the people out on you know out of it on alcohol could appreciate that. Mm. Um, but there was all elements of it too that the uh, the hippies could. And um, you know, it was funny because that was also the first time I think that <clears throat> you started noticing, you know. Um, Pollute, you know, psychedelics that were not pure. Right. Um, up until that stage, if you bought LSD or mescaline or psilocybin, you could be 100% sure that it was not tainted with anything. I mean, mm. nobody did that. And as a result, you know, it was a lot of the experiences that people had from the late 60s through until, you know, 1972, I think, were um, incredibly pure experiences of, you know, transcendence through um, psychedelics. But I noticed at Sunbury that there was some some rough gear getting around and uh you know uh, was that... this was this potentially a sign of um uh, uh changing actors in the market were there potentially some people from i mean you, you mentioned that there was a slightly different crowd when do you know when we started to see um bikies getting into into the drug trade was this uh, had this already been happening or you're not sure i think it was probably the year after that in the um <clears throat> the sydney um Wallachia. Uh, festival, music festival in the western suburbs of Sydney at that stage. I think that's the first time I saw, um, you know, kind of bikies just around a little bit in that area. Mm. Um, up until then, no, I don't. I didn't see any bikies at Sunbury. Mm. Not the first one anyway. Yeah, not even trying to denigrate on, on <clears throat> bikies here. No, no, nothing just, wrong with bikies. Just, uh, yeah, no, it's just <laughs> I know in the um, uh, over in the US that, I mean, the, the bikies were doing security for the hippie festivals. That's right. This was this was there how it worked. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So, and, and um, yeah, I just I wonder what, what had happened, who, who was selling what in the market. Maybe even there were efforts by um, sort of uh, counterinsurgents people, you know, we can only speculate oh, yeah. in this area because there's so much that's still um, who would, who would just know? not said. Well, um, I mean, I know that um, one of our, um, you know, one, one of, a, you know, the uh, good friends of ours who's now deceased, uh, uh, you know, a big uh, a drug dealer in Canberra uh, was caught at one stage uh, by the federal police and, uh, you know, started working for ASIO after that. And uh, this was borne out when, um, you know, Jack Waterford handed me about three and a half thousand ASIO transcripts of the phone at um, Canning Street, which was the place where, you know, the Vietnam moratorium movement was based. Mm. Uh, and uh, every phone call that was made out of that place in 1971 was recorded by ASIO, and here we had them. 
in in a box in a beer box and <laughs> so was it was it recorded with the excuse that it was look they were looking for drug deals but of course no 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 no, 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 okay, no it was for politics it was for politics okay yeah. it was for politics yeah but um but the, those phone taps because uh, my friend who was busted you know and who became an AGO informant mm. I mean we didn't know that at the time we always wondered why he never got busted you know because he was very out there in his activities uh but later on when those phone taps came through there were some signatures on the bottom and some names there that uh that without a doubt he he was their informant for the you know uh the ASIO's informant on the Vietnam moratorium movement mm. uh and that he'd probably been blackmailed because he'd been caught with a large amount of uh, of dope and uh you know they'd given him an opportunity to uh you either work for us here or you can go to jail. And uh, so he decided to uh, to work for them. And, um, you know, I don't know, it's hard to say how much of an impact that had on, on, the, on uh, the moratorium's effort. I don't think it had much of an effect at all, to be honest. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, some of, the, some of those transcripts were just bizarre in the extreme. I mean, they listed the type of tea people were drinking, you know, in the room and things like that. And you've got to think, what the hell are they, you know... What were they going to do with that information? <laughs> I have no idea. Be really polite next time they offer somebody well, a tea. I know, I know your exact brand. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I don't know, but it was just bizarre, some of the things that were recorded there. So, yeah. I mean, so it's over, over, the, um, over the decades following, what, what sort of happened between after, after that? Because the Sunbury Festival went on for a few years and then yeah. sort of shut down mid, mid-70s, mid was Yeah, mid-70s, it? yep. Yeah, and it was, was it the same with Aquarius, mid-70s? Uh, well, no, the, I think the Aquarius one only went on for another... Well, yeah, you're right, sorry, it did. I think there were another two or three at Nimbin. Mm. Uh, uh, that probably went right through, actually, um, because I attended the 10th anniversary one as the editor of the sort of hippie lifestyle magazine, Simply Living, and... Mm. Uh, you know, that had become much more like, you know, a lot of straw hut, you know, building and hippie oh, yeah. buildings and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know. Were but, the earth ships taking off then? Was yeah, that, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, the earth ships were taking off. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it was all very exciting at the time. You know, mm. of course, it was just fantastic. And uh, yeah, there are still two or three people, like including Michael Balderson, who live up there now, who runs Mardi Gras festival which is really those Aquarius festivals you know 30 and 40 years on mm. but you know people like him and um uh oh what's his name uh Greg Duncan and John uh oh, I can't remember but there's a two or three others up there yeah. who are still there in, in their you know nearly 70 uh, mm. you know still living the lifestyle and and living the dream and and you know good on them I, I think they those people are incredible pioneers you know they really are did um did things to sort of taper off for a little bit um, in the later 70s and during, during the 1980s? Because well, there was obviously a scene change and we saw more um, more sort of the, the punk music yeah. come out in the, in the 1980s and a more, uh, perhaps more anarchic um, punk and anarchy sort of going together, the, the crusties and the, um, the ferals and yeah. like all this sort of thing. What, what was the shift that happened? Oh, well, I think the shift was entirely natural and, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, Rock and roll, you know, and, and, you know, sort of that music was becoming a bit stale, you know, mm. in, the, in the late 70s. And so, you know, I mean, it just had to happen. You know, there had to be a revival and, you know, that's what it was. It was just, you know, burn the place down and... Uh, start again. Start again. And, you know, in many ways that happened. And I think that it was probably a good thing. Uh, you know, the drugs changed as well in that period. Mm. You know, More amphetamines. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, I mean, ecstasy started to really... Uh, you know, I remember the, the first time I, uh, well, I had had MDMA 
back in the early 70s. Mm. Um, once or twice it came out from America and it was absolutely a fabulous experience. I mean, it really was. It was, it, But it never happened again after that. I never had it again until Richard Neville, the late Richard Neville, um, you know, the editor of London Oz Magazine and Australian Oz Magazine and, you know, the author of Play Power and, you know, just one of our one of our really great countercultural commentators of all time. I'm looking forward to this report because I drove up to Nimbin about uh, four or five years ago and right. apart from the little town which looked as though it had had a new lease of life, right. I couldn't really see much of the alternative living because they're all hidden out in the bush apparently. Exactly, they want to get away from people like you in cars <laughs> yes. coming up with a trial of them They're all doing enough. it in, yeah, in their own little hamlets and villages behind the hills. Now you were there at the beginning, weren't you? Yes. And just to explain to people, we've got the, it's up past beautiful Lismore. Yes, Lismore. It's just a little bit to the north of Lismore and yeah. it's inland from the coast. It's right. about an hour's drive from Byron Bay. And it was a, a dairying country originally, wasn't it? Yeah. Farmers Daring and, so. and, uh, and timber. And that will, yeah, that's the town. And I think that, that this footage is probably taken of the festival that they had there in 1973. Oh, and see, well, people ought to remember that the whole, the whole ideals of the 60s at this time all over the world had kind of were collapsing down the, you know, the flower children were catching diseases, they were carrying guns, there was the Charles Manson affair. Yeah. And people on the whole were beginning to get very depressed or going back into straight culture, very confused. And two university students in Australia who were supposed to hold a very traditional kind of university festival drove round the north coast to find a perfect little town where they would just invite counterculture people from all over the world and all the people in Australia just to come and celebrate all the ideals of the 60s. And they chose Nimbin. Right. And in fact, I was sitting in a basement in London, slightly baffled and dazed by the end of an era, and I got a letter saying, you know, come back to... Oh, this that's you and that. Yes, they... <laughs> baffled and dazed, as I, as I said. And they said, look, come back to with Nimbin. We're going, people from all over Australia are going to come and live in wigwabs, and people are going to form communes, and you can sing and dance and have a good time. So, like a lot of other people, I came and moseyed along there, in, you know, which was exactly 10 years ago today, and it was quite extraordinary because my experience of basically in England had been going to rock festivals where people were always sleeping in the mud or in the lavatories right. and stealing each other's sleeping bags and ripping each other off, and you had St John's Ambulance and the Red Cross serving cocoa late at night. It was all very whingy and pommy and despairing and negative. And there I was at Nimbin, I'd been, it was, it was just incredible, you'd just get up and sort of bathe in the river and you'd... Well, perfect climate. Uh, it was absolutely too. extraordinary climate, yeah. lots of fab fabulous people. And, and I remember that there, there were these sort of rubbish bins and it was all sort of, you know, metal, the vegetable matter, paper. And I, I once by mistake, I put an apple core in the wrong bin and I spent sort of 10 minutes wondering whether I should go back and take it out and put it in the compost bin because that's how sort of Nimbin got to you. Oh, really? It's so days. idealistic. Well, it was. It was well, and, and sort of yoga and beekeeping and all sorts of things. I mean, there was children who were born there. But see, Nimbin was very advanced because although kids were born during that festival, you could all sort of watch it on video hookups in the, in the trees if you didn't happen to be, you know, right in the tent. So it was always trying to look ahead as well as looking behind. But you could watch them being born on television. Yeah, on a little, on a little local bush video unit if you wanted to. But we could swim, or you could go to the. There were incredible uh, sort of makeshift sauna baths just built by the, uh, the right. riverbanks, which you could yeah. go in. And uh, that's when I first realised that the, you know, that the taboo of against um, being sexually inclined in mixed company was a thing of the past. In other words, Nimbin had lots going for it on many different levels. Is that delicately enough for you? Beautifully yes, Richard Neville asked me up to his place at. Um, the Blue Mountains, uh, to try this new drug that Timothy Leary had sent him. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, so we all took that and had a fabulous time. Uh, and that was MDMA. It was MDMA. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was just beautiful. That was before it was illegal. That would have been 
probably in 1983, I think, mm-hmm. maybe 84, something like that. Um, and uh, well, it might have been 85, actually, close as that, I can't remember now. <laughs> sort of all a bit of a blur, Nick. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, yeah, things change. And it, it was just, uh, you know, as you said earlier, someone who tried to put on a festival like one of those old rock festivals, you know, 30 oh, years on. Yes, yeah. I, I, I uh, was helping with some advertising for uh, this guy that was trying to reboot Sunbury Festival uh, in about 2011, and it was just uh, a bit embarrassing, <laughs> why would, really. Why would you do that? I mean, I just... Uh, well, you know, for the memories, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. It was a, I think it was a purely... Um, uh, um, what, what do you do when you're, when you're just going back in your memories and you're just trying to live your memories over yeah, and over? Becoming senile. Uh, <laughs> that could have been this man, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, not many people turned up and the, the bands were a bit stale. So. No, I mean, I just I, I can't imagine even many people, you know, my age who are, you know, getting close to 70 doing that. I mean, you know, you'd much rather go to Rainbow Serpent or something, you know, where mm. it's all kind of, you know, happening, you know, Burning Man, whatever, you know, just yeah, go to something that's... seed festivals, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and that's some... Um, I actually I had a, had a good, um, good chat with... Uh, one of the uh, founders of uh, Dancewires, which has been going nearly 25 years now, yeah. so it was founded in the mid 90s um, uh, as the um, as the rave uh, sort of scene was bursting, which which came about in the in the 80s as sort of um, a punk ethos came together with the electronic music and MDMA, as that was really getting a lot more popular and, and created this um, this sort of um, punk, punk anarchic but also electronic um, music festival scene. Um, and she said that uh, at that time there was a real difference and a real separation between those, uh, those who were choosing to take substances like MDMA or psychedelics or amphetamines and those who were choosing to drink. Well, mm. the festivals that I see now and the festivals I've seen for the whole time I've been going for the you know uh, a decade, 15 years or so, um, it's very much a mixing. Uh, mm. like what I see is uh, people love to just drink and drink a lot but also take other things, and I, I see that through... Um, volunteering in, in care roles at festivals as well. Um, it seems like the, the the politics has changed slightly because um, there's just a lot of alcohol mixed mm. in sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, I wonder, but yeah, I don't know. Is that something that you've noticed that there's a, a difference between the sorts of, I mean, you said earlier that there was difference between the sorts of um, politics and ideas and things, actions even that people have and the, the substances that they prefer. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, look, I, I you know, I mean, many people will probably think, you know, and, and you know, my wife, partner Fiona Patton, probably also think, you know, but I just think that, uh, you know, alcohol is basically a poison and, uh, you know, that it, it depresses the central nervous system and, and you know, the experiences you, you have on alcohol are not worth having in the end, that they're not um, conducive to right action, uh, whereas, you know, hallucinogenics and psychedelics um, and, you know, and MDMA, that those things are all, you know, they have a completely different effect. And, you know, the end result of the actions and the thoughts that you have on those things is to produce life-affirming, you know, things and qualities in the environment. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, it, I, I just think that that's uh, a real problem these days is people dull their experience, the potential that they can have to, to make, you know, to change their life in really fundamental ways by using alcohol with those other drugs mm. that, you know it's it's not only counterproductive but uh you know the, the, the hallucinogenics uh, 
you know, amplify the negative effects of the alcohol in that sense. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, just to just to touch on a harm reduction tip while we're in the middle of a conversation, <laughs> um, when when people do mix uh, alcohol and a psychedelic, um, sometimes it can it can be quite disorientating in a psychedelic experience. But if you're in just the psychedelic experience, there are ways to orientate yourself. Yeah. With alcohol, um, alcohol alone can be very disorientating. People will fall over. You see all these sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. People walk around in circles because they've lost their sense of direction. So you combine this sort of sense of impending madness that yeah. you feel <laughs> overcoming you plus the inability to gain any direction in the world and people just become quite um, difficult to handle yeah. <laughs> and uh, for yeah. their friends or for those that end up having to look after them. Yes. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think generally people get out of that experience and think, oh, I don't want to do that again, but that doesn't always mean that they don't because um, it can seem, seem like a good idea. A few drinks, yeah, that'll be fine. Till... Yeah, well, that's right. And that's why I think too that, uh, you know, if, if we're lucky enough to see Victoria <clears throat> as the first state to legalise uh, cannabis in Australia, that, uh, you know, I, I, I just think it, it'll, it won't take very long for us to see, you know, wholesale reductions in domestic violence, you know, violence on the streets, you know, all of that will, will, will start happening. Um, it really is. I, I've been thinking for a long time, and I'm not, I, I think it's sort of said by a few people out there, but I, I think if you really want to get a good idea of the, the nature of a culture, you look at the drugs it takes, the food that it eats. I could sort of think of drugs as part of the, the diet mm-hmm. overall. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you, you look at that, you can see um, that it really does affect the way that everything about that that culture and that community plays out. And um, I think we're still at about 90% of all Australians are alcohol drinkers, yep. somewhere in, in those, uh, those amounts. Um, yes. And, and um, although when, uh, if, we, if we do change the laws, and I, I hope we do, I think we're getting closer and closer, um, I don't think it's going to mean a huge uptick in people taking those substances, no. but I think it will allow that culture to mature more beyond this sort of um, constant victimised status, this, um, this, this hidden, hiding away uh, and taboo culture to something that can actually make the positive changes that it wants to make. I think. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, I agree. And I think that... Uh you know, instead of, you know, people coming home from work and, you know, having a few beers or a couple of scotches, you know, they sit back and have a joint instead. Um, you know, I do. Yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, it changes everything, yeah. you know. Yeah. It, changes, it changes everything. It changes so many things, I reckon. Also makes you drink less. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Generally. <laughs> Generally, yeah, that's yeah. right. I'm not for everybody. But, uh, well, I think, you know, it makes you sleep differently, you know. All the other states of consciousness, waking, dreaming and sleeping are, you know, are conditioned by that, you know, and, uh, you know, I think we'd have a much better state, that's for sure, if that was to happen. So uh, just before we finish up today, and thanks for the chat today, Robbie, but um, oh, it's been good. the reason why, part of the reason why I wanted to sort of touch on this culture war and, and into the into the heart of, or the roots of um, festivals in Australia is that um, over the past few years, especially, we've seen um, what I think is is um, a, a a new sort of battleground, well, not new battleground, an old reopened battleground um, in the culture wars uh, with um, uh, politicians speaking out against um, some of the electronic music festivals that are going on um, and trying to to shut them down with the excuse of drugs. Um, but I think that almost every politician that talks about it has never been to these events, uh, refuses to speak to people in any kind of, you know, uh, um, 
object or, or unbiased manner or to try and meet their bias with somebody else's alternative perspective. They don't do this. They have their opinion and they want to stick to it no matter if it's wrong. Uh, last year, the police minister uh, was making announcements in Victoria, Lisa uh, Neville, mm. was making announcements uh, that she wanted to introduce a bill um, that would be able to... Uh, really make it difficult for music festivals to go ahead, just adding more regulatory burdens, um, the ability for police to have more sway on whether or not permits were given, um, those sorts of things. In New South Wales, we've seen... I mean, New South Wales get uh, sniffer dogs uh, at mm. most festivals as well, plus throughout the community. Um, but plus, uh, more recently, over the past... Uh, about two weeks ago, uh, one of the festivals, Bohemian Beat Freaks in northern New South Wales, uh, was hit with a... Um, uh, with a char- uh, well, a two hundred thousand dollar fee to have New South Wales police at their festival, and without the police, they wouldn't have been able to get a permit and run. Last year, the fee was seventeen thousand dollars, and this is part of a user pays policing system that's been going on. Um, where I think in the in the sort of neoliberal economic perspective, where everything and every cost has to be met, um, a lot of people have been understanding of reasonable fees, so $17,000 in the overall budget of that festival mm. was not, not too much for a festival of about 3,000 people. Um, but $200,000 mm. is now uh, significant. They took them to court, the Bohemian Beat Freaks lot. Um, they won, but they uh, won but still had some conditions, and it turned out that the conditions were still that they'd have to spend $100,000 on building giant fences in this middle-of-nowhere property outside casino in uh, in regional New South Wales. Um, So they moved it to Queensland and ended up doing the festival there. But this is, you know, this is the tip of the iceberg. This is happening to every Mm. festival uh, that goes through their process. They're getting more and more regulatory burden on them. And I'm, I'm wondering, because I know I go to a lot of these festivals and I know that there are a lot of progressive ideas, there's often workshops, mm. and um, uh, I think uh, that much like the, the, the pubs of, um, uh, of, you know, 16th century Britain or the coffee houses of mm. uh, uh, 15th century Turkey or wherever, wherever it was, I think these festivals are a place where a certain kind of conversation, a certain kind of people meet, gather, get ideas and, and create new politic. And I, I sort of wonder if this is part of the culture war and anyway <laughs> well, just wanted to yeah get some look, final I think, thoughts from you on that well you know it, it's a tribal it's a tribal war i mean you know politics is very tribal you know even within parties they're tribal you know you've got all these factions that are within the labor party you know there, there are factions within the liberal party uh there are factions within the greens uh you know all parties have factions within them and all parties are, you know, at war with each other. I mean, it's a very tribal situation. And, the, you know, the tribal leaders are trying to keep control over their tribe so they're not being polluted by them or they don't lose out to them. And I think, I mean, you know, music festivals, well, you can't get anything more tribal than that. It's a really, you know, strong and positive example of people, you know, this is their tribe and this is what they're going to do. This is their culture of that tribe and they want to express it. You know, I mean, the Labor Party and the Liberal Party are free enough to express their tribal culture, uh, you know, in, in ways that not everybody agrees with. Um, you know, so uh, I, I see this as, uh, you know, a tribal wars in that way. And that's why governments uh, are doing this. But they feel like they're losing control. Uh, and this is just an easy target, you know, where they can claim that uh, public safety is at here or people people's personal safety is at risk or whatever bullshit they you know, they say, um, you know, and, uh, and and that's why this is happening. I mean, um, 
you know, how do we stop it? Well, you know, I think it's a matter of, uh, you know, trying to get more politicians in who, uh, you know, who 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 will go against that. I wonder in Victoria though whether whether the um, Lisa Neville will. I know she's been back in as police minister, uh, but I just wonder whether in fact uh, they might uh, uh, d- decide to abandon that or water that down given the election I th- result. I think they might have abandoned it straight after Lisa said it. The only place that Lisa said this was to an exclusive with a uh, with a Herald Sun uh, journalist, Wes, uh, uh, Wes somebody other, the, the uh, crime reporter, and it never popped up anywhere else. So I think um, either yeah. either he was reporting something that maybe he, he shouldn't have or she said something that was maybe a little bit more than anybody in the party room were interested in. I just thought it was a concerning <laughs> idea, but it, it got stamped yeah. pretty quick, I think. Well, I think, you know, I mean, look, the, the good thing that we can take out of the last election here is that, uh, you know, Daniel Andrews, uh, one of the first things he said after winning was to say, we are the most progressive government in Australia mm. and Victoria is the most progressive state in Australia. Now, I think he, you know, he, he knows that now. And all the commentary in the in the newspapers and on radio has been that, you know, Fiona Patton has, you know, as John Fain said, you know, dragged them kicking and screaming into progressive policies and all of a sudden they realise that they're popular. You know, people people voted for them because they enacted them, you know. Um, so, I mean, given that, I just wonder, I think Dan Andrews might just, um, you know, given that he's got such an overwhelming majority that he's probably going to be in there for eight years guaranteed now to another term, be very hard for them to lose the next election, uh, that they might just start to put forward some of these popular policies, you know, these uh, progressive policies without fear of the Herald Sun you know, bloody trying to undermine them and, you know, the the Liberal Party trying to, you know, run this scare campaign on law and order because that's been thoroughly trounced as well. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think in a way, Victoria's in the best position for many, many years to legalise cannabis and regulate, regulate it and mm. tax it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Fiona had that policy costed to, to legalise marijuana in Victoria and I think the government costings agency came back and said 240 million a year mm. i mean I, I most people i speak to say that's just woefully under what it would be that it would be closer to 300 million a year and imagine the, the number of hospitals and you know schools you can build with that coming in every year oh, you could you could fund the uh, uh the other side is you could actually fund the aod sector properly to to start really helping exactly. those those few those few people that do have problems with substances yep. and helping them effectively rather than constantly throwing them back into the community or throwing them into jail or uh, whatever it is that that's not helping them at all you could actually yeah. fund that you, that's right you could yeah. well and they could also run educational campaigns as they, as they do for tobacco i'm not trying to equate tobacco with uh, hallucinogenics and hmm. you know because it's no, cl- but there's different. risks to these things yeah. and we ought to exactly. be informed of those people need to know the risks that's right and you know what to do if they get into trouble and all that so an education campaign that uh, you know that was sort of run alongside that would be done very cheaply i mean mm. a tax on marijuana would fund that you know 50 times over um, so, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of things they could do in there in terms of, um, you know, uh, you know, people's health who, who take drugs. And, uh, you know, they could... Um, it just could be a very different sort of state in terms of uh, drug taking and people's health outcomes um, on all drugs, you know, including tobacco, uh, if, uh, if they went ahead and did this. And I think that, you know, they might just have a second look at, uh, at music festivals and actually try and encourage them. You know, and say these are actually good places. You know, these are places where people come up with good ideas, and they might just find that you know 
three quarters of the music festival votes for them. You know? mm-hmm. so, my pleasure, Nick. Thanks. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear Encyclopedia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.